come to that time where we lift up our scripture, we will be reading from the book of Philippians, chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. If you'd like to follow along as I read aloud, it is found in your pew Bibles on page 186 in the New Testament section. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown stand firm in the Lord in this way, my beloved. I urge Iodia and, her, and, her, and I urge Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you also, my loyal companion, help these women, for they have struggled beside me in the work of the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Keep on doing the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. And the God of peace will be with you. May God bless the reading of God's holy scripture. Amen. I love this passage of scripture in the sense that we have a conversation about two people that had an argument. <laughs> and somehow, he's encouraging the community of faith to help them in the process of this. The other part I love about this passage of scripture is, is that both these leaders of the church are named and they happen to be women. So here's proof that in the first century you had women in leadership in that area. Philippi being up north of Nazareth and even further north in Jerusalem. This was not necessarily unheard of, but having Euodia and Syntyche leading the church and allowing them to have this conversation is kind of beautiful. So here is clear evidence that there was a dissension in the Philippian church. So serious that maybe even the breach among the community may have been the real reason for Paul's writing. You see, the thing that I love about Paul and I despise about Paul is, is that he has a tendency to write letters on the good days as well as the bad. So like if they mess up, like he writes to the church in Galatians, you foolish Galatians, why would you ever listen to them? He slams the Galatians, telling them that they're making really bad choices and that they're, in my, in my vernacular, dum-dums. Then he has this beautiful way of talking to others like he does here in Philippi. Notice the sensitivity in which the way that Paul handles this situation. 
He, he, he affirms their value by recalling how they both have struggled beside him in the work of the gospel. We were talking about this in my Sunday school class this morning, that whenever you have two people together in a room and you ask them what's the most important thing, you're going to get three answers from two people. Now imagine what would have happened if you had 12 people and said you need to come up with one idea. Well, you could see the problem. And there's a couple ways of dealing with this when you talk about church conflict. You could be really hardcore like Paul does to the church in Galatians, and it just doesn't ever work well. It never works well for a leader of the church to stand in front of a congregation and say, you foolish people of... Dot, 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 dot. Yeah, never, never works well. Or, or you could do it like Paul does here in that moment and say, in the midst of pain and conflict, rejoice. That's why I loved the fact that Paula chose this for our prelude this morning. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And like I said, I couldn't help it this time. I, I, I felt it. I was like, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. I just, it just, you just can't do it without doing that. And it's, it, the Spirit moved me. That's right. But in the midst of this, you always find yourself struggling in the gospel as you work alongside others because you might have difference of, dis, differences of opinion. Paul also does this thing that's kind of beautiful, that when he always names his friends and, he co and his co-workers very frequently, and rarely does he ever name his enemies by name, which to me is even more beautiful that he names Euodia and Syntyche in such a way that they are his friends as well as his colleagues. Hmm. So how do we handle church and the church handle our differences? You know, it's, it's a weird thing. At the First Christian Church of Perry, Oklahoma, we never have problems. You can laugh there, it's okay. We never have conflicts. And the beautiful part, and I, and I, and I mean this sincerely, is, is that one of the things that's kind of beautiful about our churches is that if we disagree on something, we don't lash out at one another. We discuss it. And we discuss it in such a way that we want each other's voices to be heard in a way that honors that relationship with one another. It's kind of beautiful to watch how we handle things. It's kind of awesome to see how we work together as committees and teams when one person feels called to this and one person feels called to that. Here we try to make all of those things happen in the best way and the most feasible way to make that happen together. Yeah, I'm a little proud of our congregation. In this moment, Paul talks about working together as church. He says that we should always find an opportunity to rejoice about the conflict, to not allow the conflict be the problem, but rather the answer to the problem. I want you to think about this for a second. If there's conflict, what Paul is saying, is that, that means that you love each other enough to voice your displeasure. But you want to do it in such a way that honors one another. 
I used to say this when I work with couples, uh, when I do the premarital counseling before they get married, I always tell them that there comes a point when every relationship gets to a fight. There's nothing you can do about it. Sorry, just it's going to happen. A couple that says they haven't fought, well, I don't know how that works. So, But you find yourself in the midst of a moment where you're going to have an argument. And in those arguments, you have to ask your question, is it right for me to be the only person that's right in this argument? Or do I value the relationship more than being right? It's a hard question to answer. In our world, we have to be right all the time. It's super easy for us to be right because it's our life. It's our existence. It's our journey. And if you want to be along with it, you've got to do what I say. But that's not how relationships are supposed to work. That's not how communities work. We must put aside our feelings and work together so that all of our feelings are heard. That's why it's hard to be a large community of faith. Hmm. There's another problem with this. In every conflict, I don't care where you are, whether you're in a relationship or you're working with the church, there's always something underlying that causes the conflict to happen. For example, you could have had a really da- bad day at work. And you could have really had a bad moment and you have not had a chance to talk to anybody and you have this just kind of building up inside of you. And what I like to refer to this as the grenade effect. What happens is, is we start stockpiling all of these bad moments because we don't want anybody to know. Because if it shows that we're having a problem, then it shows what? Weakness. And God forbid we show any moment of weakness. So what happens is, is we build this grenade inside of us that we call stress and anxiety. Until eventually you have no choice, but you launch the grenade in a group of people. Maybe it's family, maybe it's your friends, and it explodes. And everything that you've been holding back explodes. And the shrapnel from everything that's going on is hitting people and bystanders everywhere around you. And at the end of the day, the stress and anxiety that you were dealing with is still there and you've added to it. Because we don't know how to deal with stress and anxiety. You realize that 20 years ago, maybe 30 years ago, that we never talked about that. You would hear phrases like, I'm really having a hard time at work. Well, you better buck up, bucko. Pull yourself up by your, your, your bootstraps. Or put on your big boy pants. You've got to deal with it as it throws at you. And it doesn't work. Did it ever work when they said that to you? It makes it pretty hard to pull yourself up by your bootstraps when stress and anxiety and depression are standing on your boots and won't let you pull them on. It sure makes it hard to put on your big boy pants when you can barely breathe as it is. So stress and anxiety is a real thing. And when we don't learn how to deal with it, 
it blows up. For some, it's physical aspects. For some, it's mental aspects. For some, it's relation, relationship aspects. So we have to ask ourselves in the midst of that, so that we don't necessarily avoid conflict, but learn how to deal with conflict, is you have to ask yourself, how do you relieve stress and worry in your life? And how does that work within a community of faith? Well, our hope in the church is, is that this moment relieves stress and anxiety for just a brief period of time. Where you can turn off the noises of the world and be here listening for the voice of God. That's why I say it every Sunday, that right before we pray, I say, okay, you need to take a deep breath and prepare your hearts and minds for prayer. That's on purpose. We're trying to provide a place of stress relief in an already anxious world. Some of us don't necessarily feel the stress relief inside of a worship place. You know, some of us like to go fishing. Some of us like to ride motorcycles. Some of us like to do woodworking. Some of us like to sing. However we do it, we find ourselves in the midst of this moment uh, not finding ways and, and acting them out. I mean, since March, we've been kind of locked up. And we're just now starting to find ourselves freeing ourselves from the cages of fear and real sickness. Makes it really hard to relieve stress by yourself. There's some that can do that. And there's some that don't. Paul doesn't uh, make it easy either. He gives us a series of disconnected commands like, in all of these things, you must do it in gentleness. Well, I get that. I understand. He also says, don't worry. <laughs> right, Paul, because that works. Every time I read that part, I just hear that song, you know, don't worry, be happy now, right? It's a great song. It doesn't work in real life. I mean, I know that none of you in this room ever worry about anything, right? Mm -hmm. You don't have to lie. We're in church. <laughs> then he says, in the midst of that, you should pray. Well, thank God for that, because that's usually sometimes the only thing that we can do to relieve stress. Then this is where it gets fun. Thanks a lot, Paul. He says, you must think appropriately. This does not mean that you, someone cuts you off on the road and you say, I'm going to pray for your soul so you don't burn in hell. That's not thinking appropriately, right? Just because someone wrongs you does not mean that you think about how virtuous it would be to take the dozen eggs that you just bought at Homeland and throw them, I'm sorry, launch the creation onto their home. That is not thinking appropriately. And then he says... <clears throat> You know, because we do that so well. He says, uh, do the right thing. <laughs> I only laugh um, because anybody that's ever had a teenager or worked with a teenager or been around a teenager 
you find yourself saying to them at some point or another in the conversation, you must do the right things. <laughs> Did you know that teenagers, when you say that, their eyes literally detach from their head? It literally goes into the back of their skull and it goes back here somewhere and the only thing that you can see literally is the white of their eyes. When you say, do the right thing. As they roll their eyes and half of their brain along with it. The funny thing is, is I say that about teenagers, but adults do it more. You must do the right thing. Well, if that punk hadn't cut me off on the road, I wouldn't have to be thinking this way now, would I? No, no, you must do the right thing. How does our thinking affect the way that we feel? Here you have Euodia and Syntyche, who obviously had a disagreement, but Paul urges the church to help them in the midst of this, not to, you know, take sides, but to help them in the midst of this. And he tells them, oh, you should be gentle, and you shouldn't worry, and you should pray, and you should think appropriately. He's telling this because, telling them this, because they don't do it currently. Does this sound familiar? A lot of times we find stress here because we think differently than we do when we walk out those doors. He's not chastising them here. He's not saying, get it together, Yodia and Syntyche. He's literally saying, get it together. Be servants of one another. To value the relationship more than the argument. To do these things in gentleness by not worrying. How does it affect our relationship with God and others when we think this way? What does it mean to be of the same mind that Paul's proposal it brings to this moment? You know, it's, it's hard for us when we think about life trying to figure out things and how do we relieve stress and how do we find ways of not dealing with conflict? Because we just kind of live a stress-filled life. Really anxious, if we're being honest. It reminds me of this person that I was in a, a previous congregation that I served. Her name was Norma. And, and those of my friends that are watching online from Kingman, you'll remember her very well. Her name is Norma Shaw, and I know I've brought her up at least a couple of times since I've been here. She always fascinated me about how she lived life. Norma lived at one speed. Go. And she didn't stop driving until she was 104 years old, you see. All of the highway patrol officers between Kingman and Hutchinson knew Norma's car. All the police officers in Kingman knew Norma's car, and they kind of referred to her as Maria Andretti, and she loved it. She loved being called that. And I remember one time that we got to this point when she was 104 years old, and she had uh, fallen and broke her pelvis, and she was getting a little frustrated about not being able to drive like she used to. And I remember asking her, I said, listen, I want to know 
how you do it. She goes, what do you mean? I said, I want to know how it is that you seem to stay happy even in all of the stuff that's thrown at you. Now, remind you, she's 104 years old. She just fell and broke her pelvis. She wasn't exactly happy in that moment. But at every other turn, she was always happy. It didn't seem like anything in stress had always bothered her. And she looks up at me and she says, you know what it is, Josh? It's simple. I wake up each day given a new set of challenges and I have the choice whether to embrace them or to ignore them. And of course, I'm using my words here. She said, I would choose to embrace them to the fullest. She says, I don't exactly know why I'm still alive. I'm ready to go to God. My husband died a long time ago. All of my friends have died. All of my relatives, with the exception of my daughter, are, are, are all passed away. And I find myself here every single day and asking God the same question, why am I still alive? And then she says, I'm reminded that I'm to live the best way that I can every day that I draw breath. It's a lot of wisdom for a person who made it to 105 years old. It gives us a lot to think about when we think about our own struggles and our own anxieties and the things that we have in our own life, the conflicts that come up out of nowhere in the world that we find ourselves in where we value the argument more than the relationship. It causes issues for us to think about how do we deal with our own stress and anxiety in a way that's godly. Well, I think Paul gives us some ideas. I think Paul gives us some ideas. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about every, anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication... With thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And keep on doing the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. And the God of peace will be with you. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit.